0: Allow me to begin this morning with a question. Who is that person or what is that thing that you lean on when life is hard? Who do you go to? What do you do? It's a subjective question because we all go to different Things. For some of you, you go to a spouse, your spouse whom you've been married to for however long you've been married to them. It's sort of a, you both helping each other out. One of you's down, the other lifts them up. The other one's down, the other lifts them up. For some of you, it's a family member, a parent, and, uh, an uncle or an aunt, uh, whatever else it may be. For some of you, it may even be your kids go to them to ask for wisdom, ask for help, ask for assistance, or even just to help with a project around the house. You're going to somebody else. For some, we go to entertainment or to technology, just trying to drown out the world for a moment and see what's going on either in social media or on the news. The news is another one. We all go to something And the songwriter was right when he said, everybody just needs somebody to lean on. We all need something to lean on. We can't do this thing called life on our own. And there's some of us that have learned that lesson harder than others. But even those people, those things, they can't fully support our weight, can they? Our spouse can still be irritated with us when we um, when we don't have energy to do what we need to do. Family members are. Off on vacation or trip, or they don't pick up the phone when you when you need them. And technology, well, that's an endless void of trying to cover up and trying to distract, but never truly satisfying. No, we need something bigger. And I thought of this when I was thinking of our, our graduates moving on to this next step of their lives. Whenever our seasons change in our lives. Those are the times when we can feel the most isolated, we can feel the most lonely, when we can feel the most, either for, for lack of a better term, at risk. We need something. Well, what is that? Well, my suggestion this morning is that there's nothing that we can actually lean on fully aside from the God who's revealed himself through the Bible. Now, that's a very church thing to say. You know, you, get, you, you, you come to church, you sit down, you hear the preacher up front, and you hear him say something like that, and you're like, well, he's supposed to say that. But a very natural question that we should ask from that is why? What's so great about God? Why does God have this unique, this God that you talk about and that you read about in the Bible, why, why does this God have that unique place of being able to support us when nothing else can? Why does God get that ability. Well, let's talk about that. I think that's a fair question to ask. The place where I want to ask that question and get some form of an answer this morning is in the book of Psalms. We've already talked about it. Psalm 46. Please open your Bibles. Either physical copy or your phone or however you can get a hold of it. It doesn't matter. Just Turn to Psalm 46. I believe there will also be Scripture. There's not Scripture on the back. So, turn your Bibles or look over the the shoulder of, of your neighbor. This morning, we've already heard sort of the background of Psalm 46 uh, Matt and Jessica, thank you for leading worship. Uh, ladies, thank you guys for leading worship. Matt, I will um, partner with you from now on for helping take time off my sermon by explaining the first part for me, so, so thank you for that. But what, an, what a powerful display of this, this God who, who saves, who helps his people, who saves his people, who rescues them from distress, if you read verse 1 of Psalm 46 without that background, it's a lot of bold claims without a lot of substance. Verse 1 says, God is our refuge and strength, the very present help in trouble. If you just read that verse on its own with no understanding, that's a lot of very big claims to make. You, have a, you better hold to it if you're going to make a claim like that. But God can because of the the background of this this psalm. And this is one of those verses that I think we've heard about in one way or the other, whether you're a little bit connected to church, whether you're very connected with church. You might have seen it on a coffee mug or on an Instagram page, if you will. It's a very Instagram-worthy Bible verse. God is our refuge and strength, the very present help in trouble. I think of this, one of the most beautiful sections of this verse is very present. God isn't just saying he's our refuge, he's our fortress. He's not just saying he's our strength. He gives us strength to be able to work in our, in our lives, but he is very present with us. This God is not far away. This God is not, not, not distant. This God is not a God that doesn't care about your issues. This God is very present. Present help in trouble. And thank goodness we have a God that not just doesn't just make claims like this, but He supports this claim with things that we can look back to in, in Scripture. Continuing on in this passage, read with me verses two through three. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. What's going on here? Verse 2 says, therefore, meaning based on the previous verse, based on what the first verse says, therefore, we will not fear, no matter, it says, The earth itself giving way, though the mountains moved into the heart of the sea. What's going on there? Is that an actual thing that's happening? Or is there something deeper? Is there a deeper meaning? I personally would say the latter. Is that there's a deeper meaning here? That these these psalmists may not necessarily have in in their minds the idea of a literal mountain. I mean, they knew what a mountain was. Israel has a mountain, specifically one by the name of Mount Hermon. When you think of a mountain, you may think of something that's sturdy, something that's tough, something that's rock, that's not that's so big, that's so powerful that won't be moved no matter how hard you try. A mountain is a mountain. It's almost the definition at least in the mind of the Israelites. And I think in some way of our minds here, it's almost the definition of strength, the definition of fortitude, the definition of that's not moving anywhere. And yet in this psalm, it does. The mountain is moved into the heart of the sea. The imagery is quite extraordinary, but what do they mean by that? We aren't near a major ocean here in Michigan. We've got our Great Lakes surrounding us, and they, I think, in some ways display what, what, the, what the text is trying to say here. But have you ever been out in a, giant, in a storm on either the sea or a lake, or a large body of water. I don't know if there's anybody that has, but but you can even there's there's parts of scripture that mention it where the wind is whipping and there's intense rain and there's thunder and there's lightning and the the waves are are uncontrolled and all over the place and you're getting tossed to and from every single direction. It's a place of 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 chaos, of unpredictability. If a mountain is sturdy and it's going to stay in one place, oceans are constant. Constantly shifting on one level with tides, and on another level, whenever storms come in, and well, you can hear of various shipwrecks to know that storms are dangerous. The ocean is dangerous, it's powerful. When the ancient Israelites who was writing the psalm would have heard or would have thought of the ocean they would have thought of a place of complete and utter chaos it can't be controlled it's too big and so we have in the mind of the israelite the firmest definition of sturdiness getting thrown into the firmest the firmest definition of chaos What the psalmist is, is saying is that there are things that we think of that are sturdy, that we can lean on, that we know and we believe in our heart, that it will protect us when we are going through difficulties in life. But even those things that we hold on to, they themselves can shatter Anything in this world that we can lean on, it can shatter at some point. And we've all had that moment of, or many of us have had that moment of realization when we thought something was going to make it. We thought this thing that we could hold on to, like, this would never get destroyed. Well, it, 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 it did. And then we're surprised. We're shocked. We say, what am I supposed to do? I have nothing to reach to. I have nothing to cling to. I'm calling it a... Aptly named Mountain in the Sea moment. What's your Mountain in the Sea moment? For many people in our, our country, that Mountain in the Sea moment happened a few weeks ago in Uvalde, Texas. Surely something like that would never happen. And it did. Perhaps your mountain in the sea moment was, well, I can, I know I can lean on this person, whether it's a spouse or a family member, and then, for one reason or another, they pass away. Mountain in the sea moment. If I'm going to move the application further inward and think of Christians specifically, I know a mountain in the sea moment for myself is hearing about what seems like the the onslaught of scandals of godly leaders, Christians who do horrible things, different forms of abuse, embezzlement, affairs, you, you name it. And we build our faith on these people, but then when we find out these people are imperfect too, our faith is shaken. Mountain in the sea Moment. But the beautiful thing in this passage is it says that even even that thing you hold on to so much, if that thing is destroyed, God is still and can still be your refuge and strength, the very present help in trouble. These things that I've mentioned, they can be destroyed. God cannot be destroyed. God can, can bear your weight God can bear your burdens. God can be that very present help in trouble. You just have to let him. You just have to let him. That's one of the ways that God can be that thing that we lean on is because when everything else fails, God can't fail. Next part of the passage, verses 4 and 5. Please read with me. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. Again, knowing the backdrop, we can, we can picture what's happening here and the, the insight that the psalmists are leaning onto and that our, 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 our writing are remembering when they think of this. But this is a weird thing to put in the middle of a psalm that if you know anything that happens after this, it's a very dangerous-sounding psalm. psalm. Mountains being thrown into seas later on, talking about nations and, and wars and battles and conflicts in the middle of the psalm, almost literally in the middle of the psalm. It's this gentle few verses. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. Our idea of a river, we have a couple of different rivers in the community. You can drive over bridges and see rivers and whatever else. But for where Israel's located, in in the place that they are on earth, they're in a very arid climate. There's a lot of desert around them. We here, we don't have to go far to see green, to see life, to see animals. But in Israel, it was dependent on one source, because it's an arid, desert-like climate, except for where you found the rivers. Except for where you found rivers, and it's almost like this river might be moving through a a desert area, and that's where you find green, that's where you find life, that's where you find animals, that's where you yourself can get life from, because, you know, you need water. And so this stream is almost like a place of life when in a, in a place where you're surrounded by famine and, and, and death and a dry, just, just, just miserable climate. And so when the Israelites thought of a stream, they thought of something they could hold to, some sort of life in the midst of death, and that stream makes glad the city of God, the city of God being a place called Jerusalem which is also the holy habitation of the Most High. If you know your Old Testament, you would know that in Jerusalem exists a building called the Temple. Modern day, there's not a temple there. There's only one wall of the Temple still left standing, known as, I believe, the Eastern Wall. But that Temple was so central to what an Israelite would believe about God because the Israelite belief, based on what is found in scriptures, that during the Old Testament, God was located in the Temple and in the Temple only. If you wanted to go to God, if you wanted to worship God, if you wanted to hear from God, if you wanted to be in the presence of God, you had to go to the temple. You couldn't go anywhere else to find God. The temple was the place where God thought or sought it good to make his presence rest. And so when it's talking about this city of the God of God, this holy habitation of the Most High, it's talking about, about God making this place called Jerusalem, this place of the temple, this place where you could find the presence of God to be a beautiful place. If you can get near to the presence of God, you can get to a beautiful place. Now the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament is now we don't need to go to a physical structure or a building to find God. The thing that happened in between then and now is is, is Jesus Christ dying on the cross and through his death on the cross and raising from the grave, he offers us an opportunity to have our sins paid for so that we could be deemed Righteous enough by God's own work, not by ours, so that God would be able to rest in us. It says that we are God's temple. Is that Christians, individual Christians who have turned from their sin and trusted in Jesus to forgive them of their sins? They are God's temple, and God rests in them. So now, no matter where you go, if you believe in Jesus, God. Is with you. The Old Testament believers couldn't always say that. But now, because of what Jesus did for us, we can say that. And so God not only offers us an opportunity for, to rest on Him who cannot be shaken, but He also offers us an opportunity to never be alone. Life is so lonely sometimes. Many times, life is so lonely lonely and isolating. And God offers us a way to never be alone. I was talking about that person you could lean on. They can, they're they're, they're great. I'm not saying that people that you can trust in are, I'm not saying that's bad, but I'm saying that they will, they have to leave at some point. I mean, they probably got a job on a practical level. But also they could They've got to go. They've got other things to do. Maybe for some of us, they they passed away. And they're great, and we love them, and we miss them. But we can't lean on them anymore. God doesn't pass away. God doesn't leave us. God does what no one else can, is just be with each and every one of us every second of every day. If you trust in God. This is only, it is only given to you as a gift by believing in, in the death of Jesus to pay for your sins. Again, turning from your sins and trusting in Christ. Only at that point can we ever say that we are never truly alone. So that's our second reason why we can trust God to lean on. Is that he will always be with us. The third reason is found in verses 6 through 10. And I'll close at verse 11 as well. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. The camera lens is shifting a lot in this psalm. First, we were at just these these structures of security that we hold on to, and then we moved to a quiet, peaceful place where God resides and where we can be in his presence, and now it shifts to all the other events happening on the earth. It shifts to the nations. Nations that rage. Kingdoms that totter. I think of a teeter-totter. Nations think they're so strong, Nations think they have much security, but they are on this teeter-totter compared to the security of, of God. And again, based on the, the context of the great, this, this great victory that God had over the forces of, of, a, of a nation called Assyria, we see that he makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow, shatters the spear, he burns chariots with fire. God is a God that, that, that when we have enemies against us, God destroys them. God promises that they will be destroyed and he was faithful to his promise here. And if he's faithful to his promise here and God never changes, God will be faithful to his promise with us. But we need to make a very important distinction between the enemies of the Old Testament and the enemies of Israel with the enemies of the Christians today. God worked in a a slightly different manner in, in, in Israel. He worked through a nation, the nation of Israel, and nation states have enemies. All nations have some other nation that wants them to be destroyed in an effort to gain power, in an effort to gain success and prosperity for its people. And so when we think of Israel as a nation, it had literal enemies literal kingdoms that were seeking to destroy it, and it was surrounded by them. It had Egypt down to the southwest. You've heard a little bit of Egypt in in the Bible with the Exodus and things of that nature. With Assyria, as has been mentioned, and eventually comes the Babylonians, and in the New Testament, it switches to the Romans. Romans these different nations are are, are warring against God's people and God promises them that that these are your enemies, these will be destroyed. But our enemies are different. Christianity is not a nation-based religion. Christianity is not only based in a single country. God isn't working through a single country. God is working through people that transcend country, and ethnic, and racial barriers. God is working in Korea, and in China, and in England, and in South Africa, just as much as he's working here in the U.S. We have no level of authority to make just because we're Americans. God is not working through nations. He's working through people. And even more so, if we look to the New Testament, I'll turn there very quickly. You don't have to. If we turn to the book of Ephesians, it tells us, Paul in this verse tells us very clearly who our enemies are. And he's very explicit. In verse 12, talking about the armor of God that we can put on to defend ourselves and be strong in the Lord, it says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil and the heavenly places. I think sometimes we're quick to put a face to our enemies, to put a people to our enemies, to say that that. Those people are our enemies. And we, and we live in a culture that does this. I mean, again, look at the news. Everybody's everybody's enemy in one way or another. It's kind of overwhelming. But Scripture is very clear in that our enemies today are not people, are not ideologies, are not nations. Our enemies are the enemy of God, known as the devil and his allies. Your enemy is not that person down the street that you disagree with. Your enemy is that thought in your mind that says there is no God. Your enemy is not those people you see on your favorite news source. Your enemy is that thought in your mind that says, did God really say that? That perhaps says you shouldn't believe in God anymore. You can't believe in God anymore. He's not even real. He, was, he may have been good for some people in a time, but he's not good anymore. We have to be so careful when we say one thing is our enemy over another, especially when Scripture is very clear and says, your enemy is not flesh and blood. Your enemy is not people. Your enemy is spiritual forces of evil, is the devil and his allies. But... Coming back to the passage here, just as God worked and protected Israel from its enemies, so God promises us today that he will protect us from our enemies. Do we have some skin in the game? Do we need to fight that fight? Yes. But it's only God who is able to destroy those enemies, and he promises that he will, that there will be a time and a day when when sin and when the devil and when evil exists no longer. When the hardest part of existence will just be a memory of death, not a present encounter with it. For at that time, we will know that God is the one that we can lean on because he destroys all evil. He will destroy all evil. He started as a preliminary work on the cross giving us access to a relationship with God by the blood of Jesus and, that, and there will be a future fulfillment of that with death being forever destroyed by the power of God, not us. And so friends, in closing, I want to point to verse 11, same as verse 7. When you see a, pa- a verse repeated, especially in the Psalms, you really want to listen up. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. The Psalm ends with an appeal back to whom God is. God isn't just a distant God, but God is a God of, of, your, of, of the Israelites' ancestors, of Jacob, of Abraham, of Isaac, of Joseph, of Moses, of David. And just as God delivered all of them and brought them to the place that he wanted them, so God will do the same for us today. This God is a relational God who knows names, who knows people. It's a, and, and who is this Lord of hosts? This is a Lord of hosts of armies, of angels, of power, of authority that... Though everything else seems like it falls apart, God never will. So if I have any advice for any individuals in here, seniors, graduates, otherwise is that only God, only God is the one that we can truly lean on. Because when everything else breaks, he, can't, he won't. Because he provides us presence and, 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 and he provides us, 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 us um, a relationship with him offered through the blood of Jesus Christ. And he promises a future destruction of all things evil. These are reasons why we can lean on God. And my challenge for you is to do that today. To think of what are the things that you hold in your head that you think you can lean on them. Is it a person? Is it a thing? Is it an activity? Is it a distraction? That thing will not satisfy. Find out what that is in your life and beg God. Talk to God. Ask him to help you to remove that from your life. Maybe not remove the thing altogether, especially if it's a spouse. Don't don't pray that prayer. But God promises that he can bear our weights. He can bear our pain. And if we trust in him, he is faithful to do that for us so that we can worship him as our deliverer.